From the Garrison Institute, this is Climate, Mind, and Behavior. I'm Eleanor Bennett. Each episode, we'll explore groundbreaking intersections between climate change, resilience, contemplative practice, and human behavior. Polly Dinetclaw is a Native American journalist, born and raised in Manuelito, New Mexico. Interested in writing from a young age, she began her first book at eight years old. Today, she is studying mass communication and journalism at the University of New Mexico. Polly is also a fellow at Generation Justice, where she covers Native-based issues through her articles, videos, and shows on the local radio station. Polly's ultimate goal is to be a national voice and to share the stories of her community. Polly Dinetclaw joined the Water Protectors in Standing Rock earlier this month to stand against the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. She called me from her home in Albuquerque and shared what it was like to be part of the largest gathering of indigenous nations in modern American history. Um, hi, my name is Paul Jennifer. I am Meadow People, born to Italian house people from New Mexico. So I grew up um, close to the border of Arizona in a very uh, traditional Dinette home um, where we still practice a lot of our traditional ceremonies and prayers. And my mom and my father both speak uh, Navajo fluently. And I participated in a lot of the ceremonies growing up and also just being an active part of my community and making sure that, you know, um, we were there when our family needed us. Very cool. And can you talk to me a little bit about what those ceremonies were like and what they were? Well, the basics of most Navajo ceremonies are to restore hajong, which is to restore peace and harmony to someone. What kinds of traditions or ceremonies did you do with your parents growing up or something that you kept doing in your life since then? So a huge thing within Tanak culture is prayer and so praying every morning to the holy people. And that's something that I grew up doing with my mom most mornings as a young girl. That's probably one of the things that I really enjoyed most was like waking up in the morning and praying to the youth with my mother. And so just trying to live that life of social peace and harmony. And one of the ways that you do that is by praying every morning. And so that's something that I try to do um, every day in my life. And um, I guess that's one of the things that I really cherish most about what was passed down to me. And do you feel like that, that prayer and that tradition has strengthened your activism and your journalism and what you're doing now at all? I think that it's definitely given me a different perspective, especially growing up, having my mother and having my father say, you know, Mother Earth, Father Sky, Grandfather Darkness, and living within the four sacred mountains, hearing Genesis. And so really understanding us is a community kinship and having all those values instilled in me as a young person growing up is really instrumental in why I do what I do now. And it's really important, especially for me, to give back to my community because that's something that, you know, growing up we got told all the time is you go to school, you leave, you do all the things that you need to do, and then you come back and you help your community. 
because there's so much need on the Navajo Nation, and then also making sure that we're taking care of Mother Earth, you know, in terms of climate change, making sure that we are helping the issue and not adding to it. So that's why I have such a strong connection to movements like the Keystone Pipeline and the Dakota Access Pipeline, and also fracking, which is a huge issue here, especially in our sacred sites, and it's just, I see the damage that has happened to the land and to my community. And how did you first get involved in social justice journalism? I read that you've been writing since you were eight years old, which is pretty cool. Yes. Um, I picked up a pen and I started writing a chapter book when I was eight. It was told through the lens of Winnie the Pooh, but it was basically about my experience <laughs> getting glasses for the first time. And so that was the point when I started to write down my own story and my own history um, as a young Diné girl growing up and what that meant and sort of my perspective on the world. Um, and so it's always been really important for me to write. I never really thought about the connection between these ways that I ground myself in my personal life and then the action and social justice that I'm interested in in my sort of outer life. I'm wondering if that's something you thought about or if it was something that gradually over time started to see the cause and effect. But does cultivating an inner self actually help us to take action in the world and do things that we care about? I think it definitely does, especially because as a young Indigenous person, our lives are so political um, and our identity is very political especially when you bring in the history of Indigenous people, treaty rights, land rights, and then also, you know, the United Nations Declaration of Indigenous People. And so, as a young person, not really knowing the theoretical framework and also the historical context of my identity, it was in my writing life first started to really understand and question why certain things didn't feel right to me or why, like, certain situations that I was in with, you know, teachers at my school or interactions that I had with um, people in my community just didn't sit right with me. Um, and then learning later on that, you know, those were microaggressions that I was picking up on, um, mm-hmm. being a young Indigenous woman in a very um, violent and racist border town. I think that that's why... I gravitated more towards writing because I was never really good at articulating it verbally because I needed time to think about it and to process it and understand it better. And Indigenous people historically have never written their own history. And I think it's really important that the history that is being created right now gets written from an Indigenous perspective. When we write our own stories, it's an act of resistance. It's an act of resiliency, and it's also how we can tell our own stories to future generations so that these don't get lost. It's almost, I'm just listening to you describe this act of writing because it sounds almost like it's in a way a contemplative practice where you're reflecting and taking a minute, giving you different space for yourself and working through them. And then it's also activism at the same time because you're publishing it hopefully and getting it out there and telling these stories that need to be told. It's it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So really standing up for a minute. What was it like to be part of the largest gathering of Native American nations in modern history? 
and you describe it for me. So uh, I drove over 1,100 miles from New Mexico to near Cannonball, North Dakota, and I stayed at the Ochevis-Sakowin camp, and it was really just such a life-changing experience because I have never been in such a beautiful place where there's so much prayer, where there's so much love and community, and where you feel safe all the time. And I think one of the best examples of this is on Saturday morning, we got got woken up, and apparently this happens like every day, and on the the speaker, um, the MC of the camp basically wakes everybody up by saying, Wake up, relatives, wake up, water protectors and land defenders. It's time for us to defend the land. It's just having him say, wake up, relatives, it's time for us to get up, it's time for us to do morning prayer, really captures the essence of the camp. It's like we're all relatives, we're all here to protect the land, and we're all there in prayer. That really reaffirms my identity and also why I do the work that I do. Wow, and okay, when you were talking about the loudspeaker Nancy saying, wake up relatives, I just think that's so incredible because I feel like a sense of community is so vague in our world sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, what do you think it is that drew so many people from all over the nation? So this issue really does affect all of us because an attack on our water supply, an attack on our land by oil companies who are trying to perpetuate this idea that this pipeline is safe, when the land is polluted, it affects all of us. And so that's one of the reasons why so many people have been drawn there. But for Indigenous people in specific, um, when your relatives are calling you and asking you for help and saying this is what's happening here. We are asking for you to come and support us. Then you have to go. You know, it's a feeling, it's a draw. It's your people, it's your relatives, it's your community asking for help. And you don't turn your back on family. Thank you. And and do you feel like the gathering being centered around is some like a shared history connection with the land and the water and Tradition sort of strengthens the movement. Do you think it would be a strong all that? I think the reason why this movement is so strong is because we all have, within our own Indigenous knowledge, within our own Indigenous teachings, very deep perspectives on what community is. And that aspect really has strengthened this movement, but that has always been the strength of Indigenous people. We are so centered around protecting our community and making sure that we keep the land safe, we keep ourselves safe for the next generation. Because it's not it's also not about us. It's about the future generations that have to inherit what we do. Yeah. I think about that yeah. a lot with climate change. Well I guess what's another question. Is climate change on the radar out there at all? I think definitely. But like the larger overshadowing is that these energy companies are polluting our land, that these energy companies um, and energy consumption and energy exploitation is an issue. Yeah. 
you know, it's under the umbrella of all of that. But this in particular is a serious threat to our land and to our water. And making sure that future generations have clean water to drink, have clean air to breathe, have clean land to live on. And it's also definitely an environmental justice issue. Was there anything surprising that you didn't expect at the garden? One of the major things that really surprised me was just the sheer amount of love and prayer that is there. It's overwhelming. Um, you know, I had people walking by and shaking my hand and saying good morning and getting hugs from, you know, people who I didn't know at the time but were aiming for me and making sure that I'm safe and that I'm fed and they were telling me um, stories and, you know, their own history about how they got there. And it was beautiful. I watched this interview that came up on my Facebook feed, and it was part of, I think, a larger documentary by Skybird Black Owl. And it's called End of the Line, The Women of Standing Rock. And it was an interview with a mother who had just given birth at the Standing Rock Gathering, and she was talking about how afraid she was to sort of bring this child into the world in a place of protest, a place where conflict was happening, and instead it turned out to be this incredible, loving place, and, and what you were saying about the love you felt there, when mm-hmm. you think of that. Yeah, it's, it's one of those overwhelming things that you feel, emotions that you feel when you're there. You hear it a lot, but you don't really understand what they what they mean until you go there and you feel it for yourself. Wow, that's really amazing. And um, moving back into your personal life for a second, I feel like sometimes in the face of all this bad news, it's easy to feel grief and to feel despair and to feel like there's nothing I can do about these issues as someone who wants to make a difference in the world. And so I'm wondering how you manage your own feelings about social justice violations and environmental degradation and climate change and, and standing rock and all of its implications. So what I've really learned as part of doing social justice work is the power of prayer. So that has really helped me to get through those moments where I feel like nothing is going to change and everything is just going to repeating itself. Um, and those moments where I'm feeling really, really low. And so I, I pray. And it's given me a lot of peace of mind, especially because I have such a close relationship with the holy people now. And I know that through the power of prayer, that we will overcome. And that things will always work out in, in our favor. And so that's, that's what I think. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with that. And I- I was just listening to podcasts on being, but the last episode was with a poet named Mary Carr. She, they were talking about God and the notion of God, and she was basically like, maybe there isn't a God. Like, we really can't know, and if there isn't, then you know what? The power of prayer is so real. It doesn't even matter. We can argue all day about this, but to me, it's about something larger. It's about this idea that I'm saying I'm create hope in myself and that I'm unable to go out and, and do what I need to do in the world and, that, and to hear her say that I just I don't know got me thinking 
definitely agree with that. Yeah. Hope is something I think about a lot because I do think there's too much optimism sometimes and people think, oh, the planet is fine, it'll figure it out on its own, or we are so smart, we'll figure out the technology in the future to get rid of all the carbon that we're putting in the atmosphere, but we don't have to worry about that now. So I think you can take it too far, but without it, we certainly can't do anything. I mean, we don't have hope. Yeah, definitely. I think the key is thoughtful hope. I totally hear what you're saying, and I feel like those types of optimism are rooted in ignorance. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that when we are like, coming from a place of hope that we are really understanding, that we have to be really thoughtful about it and to really think about it. Um, because, like you did say, that type of optimism can lead to being really apathetic about issues that are happening. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I really like that idea of thoughtful hope. Thank you. But I'm going to take that into practice in my own life. And um, my last question for you to end on a hopeful note is what do you hope happens in staying rock and are you optimistic, thoughtfully optimistic about stopping the pipeline? I believe that there is so strong there and that the people are so powerful there that we will definitely at some point get a ruling in our favor. In my heart, I feel like that's going to happen. And, you know, I pray for that, and I know that people all around the world are praying for that as well. And Me too. I'm glad to hear you say that. I have to go now. But yeah. it was really wonderful to talk to you, Eleanor. Thank you. I feel like this is very grateful. Take care, Polly. To learn more about the Garrison Institute's Climate, Mind, and Behavior Program, visit garrisoninstitute.org, where you can also listen to an archived podcast of this show, join our mailing list, and sign up for our monthly email newsletter, delivering the latest research and programs from around the world that promote resilience in a changing climate, right to you. Our theme music is composed by Zoe Keating. You can find her music on iTunes or on her website, zoekeating.com.